as I'll ever be. All right. Well, we're live. So what do you think of the book? I actually really liked it. Really? Yeah, like it very much. I did not. A lot. What? Why? We'll get into it. I just I, I want to start off every podcast now, like all the new episodes okay. with asking what people think about it. So okay. I just want to get like really liked it. Yeah. yeah. Like as, as far as like nonfiction books, you would say it's. Well, because it's more of like the things that I'm interested in. Yeah. I liked it. I, I have read a few other like books on seafood and things. And I felt like this one was really cool because it took the three different fisheries at three different stages and like melded them all together pretty well. I felt like it was well written. Yeah. But yeah, I guess we'll get into why and everything. But you really liked it. I didn't. So, but let us know who you are. So you're oh. Adam. Yeah. Uh, my name's Adam. Uh, Blackley. You're my brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, Hence why you're on the podcast right now. It's pretty much just friends and family. Yeah. Ain't yeah. got nobody better. <laughs> no, it's going to be like that for a while. I feel like I reached out to like a few random people. Mm-hmm. Just got ghosted. Really? That's yeah. Cool. I also think like living in Idaho Falls, it's going to be kind of hard. Like if I lived in Salt Lake, I feel like I could pull some other aspiring podcasters maybe in. But like how many people are there really in Idaho Falls? Like 12. <laughs> exactly. 12 Which, total. And well, nine of them farm potatoes. <laughs> yeah. Which is why I'm here. Yeah. Not to farm potatoes. But, <laughs> but because there's only 12 people. Yeah. All right. So you're Adam. What are you doing right now? Uh, I'm st- actually still in school right now. Okay. Unfortunately. What are you studying? Uh, I'm studying biology. Biology. Yep. So I've asked this question to everybody, but how many books have you read getting your bachelor's degree? And non-textbooks, because obviously you have to read textbooks. Zero. Zero. Yeah. So you'll, and you graduate this year, right? Yeah. In April? Mm-hmm. So you will have gotten a bachelor's degree from a university. A good one. Yeah. <laughs> and have read zero books. Do you think that that's Do bad? It. To be fair, I probably won't even read my diploma. <laughs> Honestly, I don't even know where mine is. Yeah. And I never even got it, because we moved after they mailed it. And our like last landlord just, I assume, threw it in the trash. (laughs) The most expensive piece of paper I've ever bought. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think it's just in a trash somewhere. But glad I did that. Yeah. Wasted my money doing that. Yeah. So zero books, biology degree. Are you going to use your degree for anything? Um, In certain aspects, yes. Uh, I do feel like... The things that I have learned in biology are useful. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I've learned in textbooks and stuff, um, and particularly in certain labs that I've taken, mm-hmm. I'll use. But, like, I don't know. Do you I, think this book would have benefited, like, individuals in your class? Yeah. Or a book but like, I go to a book like this. Or a, a book like this, though. So yes. for everybody, the book that we chose this week is American Catch. Mm-hmm. It's a nonfiction book about commercial fishing and fisheries and eating seafood. We'll kind of start diving into it a little bit more. But mm-hmm. I feel like it was pretty applicable to a biology degree. But maybe not like this book specifically, but 
nonfiction books like this or even mm-hmm. fiction books, you feel like that would be beneficial to even biology students? Yes. But they turn and burn. They yeah. aren't interested in actually educating us. <laughs> you think so? It's more of just a, a memorization. Man, uh, like, honestly, 95% of the people in my classes are pre-med, pre-dental, which I was. Uh, and so any kind of, you know, you know, you'll use this in X. It is not about biology in and of itself. It's all about health sciences. So, oh, okay. you know, my emphasis in my degree or whatever is actually in human anatomy and physiology. Um, but you know, when you really look at like the nitty gritty, you're not like too different from everything else. Like everything kind of follows the same pattern of like the way that your body works. It's actually pretty similar to how an ecosystem works. It just looks a little different, but. So you think it's, do you think it's sad though that you can, graduate from college with a bachelor's degree and not read any books it's stupid because i feel like that i don't know me personally i feel like i didn't i didn't learn to learn i learned to regurgitate information Mm -hmm. when i went to college like yeah i even i mean i had a pretty strong emphasis on math on math which is in my opinion probably one of the biggest problem solving degrees that you could possibly get at university yep and even then I almost feel like the emphasis was still on just learning how to do things or learning like, again, formulas and the different steps and not Mm -hmm. actually learning how to learn. I mean, I did take a lot of proof classes, but I mean, really, that was it. But the proof classes didn't really ever translate to any other field of study that I ever got into. So I eventually ended up in an economics degree. It was never like proof of economics it was just regurgitating economic theory which mm-hmm. is what you get out of textbooks and not out of real books i feel like right. i actually learn when i read real books when so every after every semester at the school that i go to i go to utah valley university uh they give you a survey on like you know how was your class how was your professor all that stuff and every year i rant in the survey. I know they're not listening to me, <laughs> but I rant because the way that oh we, my gosh, your dog, I know <laughs> he's a cute dog, but he's loud. You're um, good. every, or like the, the way that we learn science in the university system, I feel like is a little dumb because I and every other student in that class will never be able to recite information the way that a textbook can. Or the way that Google can. I was about to say, or the internet or chat GPT nowadays. And so why are we trying to do that? Like, who cares if the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell? Like, I understand that, like, we need to understand some information about biology and some facts to know how biology works. But I feel like that should be done in the first, like, two years of your degree. And then everything beyond that is learning how to solve problems. Like, just... Completely over and over and over the scientific method. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, but instead you take like, for example, OCHEM. I actually loved OCHEM. I hated OCHEM. That was the first C I ever got in my entire life. (laughs) My entire life. All of middle school, high school, college. OCHEM was the first one that I ever, I ever got a C in. And I hated that class with every fiber of my being. It was also the 
semester that I decided that I wasn't going to med school. And so I went from really caring about my grades to I didn't show up to OCHEM for the last half of the semester. I was like, deuces, I'll do a midterm and a final. Winging it. You can't (laughs) wing OCHEM, as you found out. (laughs) Yeah, I had an A going into the last midterm. Yeah. And then I think I dropped to a B. Then I took the final and dropped all the letter grade to a C. I was pretty proud of my C, though, not showing up to half of a year of OCHEM. It's pretty bad. <laughs> but anyway, so like OGEM, you learn all of these different reactions and things. And like I had one professor who really pushed the idea of learning how to problem solve through OGEM rather than just memorizing reactions. And that was really interesting. So I had one professor that was like for OGEM 1, it was just here are the reactions. You're going to have to memorize it. You know, that sucks, but that's just the nature of OCHEM. And then I had one professor that taught us the four general moves that happen in organic chemistry Mm -hmm. and then use those four and the basic rules of organic chemistry to figure it out. And so he would, his tests were impossible. (laughs) And so like we would go in and like literally the class average would be like 20%. I had a math class like that. But, you know, I understood OCHEM and like I later got a job um, tutoring OCHEM in the science lab and I would just like, you know, be able to help people like figure stuff out even though I didn't like know exactly how the reactions would happen. And then I always ask like, man, how do you just figure that out? I'm like, well, it's just like if you understand the rules, you can problem solve. So like anyway, my degree is a great deal of memorization of things that I know I'm going to forget, of things that I can always just look up again on Google, and I'm paying thousands of dollars to for a piece of paper for them to just tell me good enough. Do you think that's because the education system, I mean, outside of well, it's just a, being yeah. a remote hasn't changed at all since the internet? Like, I feel like all of these classes and all these standards and everything like that, I mean, we've, we've heard dad rant endlessly about education and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And when he was Mm -hmm. in college and I feel like it's the exact same thing that happens now. The only difference is, is back then it would have been useful to have memorized all the, all this crap because there was no internet. Yeah, because you'd have to go to the library and it would have taken you time. It was before paper as well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, I just think the education system needs a little bit of a reboot in that regard because the internet has changed everything except education, which is crazy. Well, I think like YouTube and things is changing education. I think it just looks different and like classical forms of education, like the university system is just not keeping up. Yeah, I think they're just like almost like marketing they're living off of last century's marketing yeah and not the developing you, you better go to college or you're never going to get a good job yeah. <laughs> they're a, they are just yeah. living strong by that motto yeah it's a good thing i went to college to get no jobs <laughs> yeah seriously i've used that degree zero so, times yeah all right so diving into the book though a little bit so this week's book we chose american catch 
And I kind of wanted to do a fun book with you. I was thinking of doing Tom Segura's book. But <laughs> next time. Yeah, another time we can do that. Because I wanted to talk a little bit about the kind of fishing industry. So you've got experience in the fishing industry. How many years have you done commercial fishing? Uh, seven, I think. Seven years. And yeah. all out of Bristol Bay. So again, Alaska looks like a little face here. Yeah, I guess we should do it this way. Bristol Bay is like right here. Right there. Yeah, right there. Yeah. Um, it's like, yeah. And it's the largest salmon fishery in the world. Yep. Right. So what is it like? How long do you go out there? Um, typically anywhere between like four and three weeks. Three and four weeks. Four and three weeks. Like I yeah. Just count down the day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the second you get out there, you want out. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> so somewhere between three and four days. And you're only. No, weeks. Weeks. Yeah. yeah. Weeks, weeks, weeks. And you're only fishing for one type of salmon, correct? Like, right. But you could hit multiple runs there. Mm. I feel like being, all, all I feel like being the largest salmon fishery in the world, it should take more than three to four weeks. I'm always surprised when you're like, yeah. I'm coming home. I'm like, you just left. Yeah. So. <laughs> Theoretically, you can hit all five species mm -hmm. in the summer. But the way that it works is like, so salmon are anadromous, which means that they're born in freshwater. They go out to saltwater to grow, and then they come back to freshwater to spawn. So the way that like Bristol Bay works is that you have all these like giant lakes and river systems. And so they all, you know, leave that area and then they all come back to the same spot where mm -hmm. they were born so they all occupy a different niche in each of those systems so for example the difference between like pink salmon that they like to spawn in you know hardly any fresh water it's like for example like when we go fishing out in valdez the reason why they all pool up in the ocean is because it's like brackish there's like you know it's it like it's like a mixture of freshwater, like uh, kind of like that confluence. They don't really care how much freshwater it is. They just need a little bit to kind of flip that switch into spawn mode. Right, right, right. Versus, uh, you know, like kings and sockeye, they'll swim all the way up into freshwater, way up into like deep lakes. Kings will swim the entire length of the Yukon River all the way through Alaska back into Canada. So they occupy different zones because of that they come back at different times and so you know in bristol bay you could theoretically fish kings although like the king numbers are pretty low right now you could fish kings in like middle of may to beginning of june and then sockeye or reds from middle of june to middle of july and then like chums and pinks like middle of July to middle of August and then silvers middle of August to middle of September. So you could hit all five, but you'd be there for five months. And that's what people used to do. Now they just hit like the money fish. Yeah. Because like you're not going to make much money on, especially pinks. I mean, you're not making like any money on pinks. So mm -hmm. nobody stays. So what does a run of reds look like in Bristol Bay? Cause I just picture like the best day I've ever had out on the Kenai it's so and it's like, I mean, it's insane. It's literally every cast. You're just yanking them out of the water. Mm -hmm. You can just see them 
swimming up the river in schools, which is crazy because the river on the Kenai is pretty wide mm -hmm. and pretty deep. And you can still just see the water at the top, like shaking from the fish, like swimming up and just, mm -hmm. I mean, literally this year there was a 200,000 day at the Kenai. Yeah. Which is a lot of fish to swim up one river in one afternoon. So imagine that, but you know, the entire river, like the entire <laughs> bay so like where i fish now is the new shigak bay which is just a small little bay tucked into the whole you know it's like russian nesting dolls you've got bays within bays within bays mm -hmm. um so new shigak bay is essentially the bay where the city i won't even say city the village of dillingham is <laughs> and uh what a party <laughs> makes idaho falls like metropolis <laughs> there's nothing in dillingham <laughs> There is a subway. <laughs> really? That yes. actually kind of surprises me. Yeah, there's a subway. No McDonald's, though. That's unfortunate. Oh, I would hit McDonald's all so the time. So hard. Yeah. It's like, you know, like $5 foot long. Yeah. It's like $12 foot long. <laughs> anyway, so. You can only eat so much subway. I feel like I could eat McDonald's or like Taco Bell quite a bit. Subway, I mean, I just remember being at Ice Ranks. Oh, well, yeah. And just skating. getting Subway. Yeah three days in a row and being like, all right, if I see another foot long, I'll tell you what, when you're eating expired granola bars <laughs> and like oatmeal for three weeks, subway is pretty nice. I guess that's true. But anyway, so Nushigak Bay is the bay where Dillingham is and it's right at the mouths or like the, the confluence of the Nushigak river and the wood river, which are like two of the, the big hitters and, in Bristol Bay and the Nushigak Bay is probably like one to two miles across. And this year I think we had like 500 to 600,000 come up in a day through that oh. bay. So <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah. I, I'll tell that story eventually. Cause that was like the worst night of my life. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you'll you'll stand in the in the water, like it, <laughs> the night before well, just, just, that happened. Just tell the I story, was, like what happened. So on the big okay, day, okay, okay, oh, yeah, okay. So <laughs> this is this year, okay. Again, I've been doing this for this year was my seventh year. I've been doing this since I was in high school. And so I've seen lots of fish. It's like you know you have big days every year, but the way that it works is like. Uh, the Alaska Department of Fish or Game will give you like openings of when you can fish. So we'll, we'll end up talking about that with the fishery in general, but like it's very sustainable, um, very managed. We really trust the scientists to like tell us how much fish are going to be there. And so they're running all of their numbers of like how many fish are going up both the wood and the new each day. So we show up a week before we even get an opening like we're there ready to fish, but we're not allowed to yet. And every day it's like 20,000 going up the river, 20, 20, 20, 50, whatever. Could and you rod and reel during that time? Like for fun? Yeah, you can. You just don't. Yeah. I mean, you play baseball, <laughs> just do like random, random stuff. But, um, cause you know, like, you're going to be fished out. Yeah, yeah. Eventually. <laughs> You're going to catch a lot of fish. <laughs> so 
anyway, um, in the, in the water there is like really murky because the whole bay is like mud. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like with, and there's like 20 foot tides. So, I mean like the water's really cooking in there and the water's really murky. So you can't really see them. So anyways, for like a week straight, it's like 20 to 50,000 going up each river each day, which by the way is a good day on the Kenai. And it is yeah. nothing. I was to about these to say, rivers. 50,000 was, I think I caught one day this year at 70,000, but I limited out every single day we fished. And on a 50,000 day, I limited out in 45 minutes. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it's a lot of fish. It's a lot of fish. But here, though, it's nothing. You, you look at that number and you like, Ugh, they're not even here yet. <laughs> right. And so it's like that. We go out the, the way that our permit works is you have to have, and this is important to the story. Okay. You have to have your net anchored on both ends. Okay. That we have a set net permit and you're allowed two, or I guess you could have one. You're allowed 50 fathoms of net. And we split that up into two 25 fathom nets and a fathom is six feet. So it's like 150 feet. Right. I think I did that math right. Um, if I didn't, whatever. I fish. I don't do math. Anyway, so. There's no one in the comments anyway at this point. <laughs> sorry, I'm in the comments. So anyway, so uh, you've got these two nets, right? And we have to like mark the places where we fish because we lease these sites from the state of Alaska. So you go and drive this five foot screw anchor. It literally looks like an auger into the mud which is like awful. It's literally <laughs> the second worst job of the year. Do if, you, uh, do you like hand screw yes, it in with a big metal pole <laughs> out just, in the mud? That's like <sighs> literally knee deep. <laughs> yeah. And you just like run around in a circle. I go out on swim trunks just so I can run barefoot in circles and like drive this thing down. Oh, that was terrible. But anyway, so we go out and we set the screw anchors out. Um, and we get an opening from Alaska fishing game. They say that we're going to fish the next night at, uh, I don't remember the exact time, but so we go out and as I'm getting back into the boat, so again, I'm in swim trunks I'm hanging off the side of the boat and like, what kind of boat is this by the way? It's a skiff. So it's like, it's like a deep metal boat. That's like 25 feet long. And it's so, got nothing besides just a motor in the back. And, yeah, and just bins for putting fish in. It's literally just a work boat. Okay. So no top cover, no bed under no, no, <laughs> no bougie. No, anything that would be comfortable is absent. Out of <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I go, I'm hanging over the side of the boat and I'm like kicking my legs like I'm swimming in every single kick. I'm kicking fish <laughs> like literally like I got stuck in an aquarium. <laughs> and there's not enough room for them and i'm just kicking them back and forth i go and do like a, a ninja kick and i hit one so hard i thought i broke my heel okay <laughs> so i mean it was like i couldn't be in the water without hitting them okay so i hop in the boat we're all stoked out of our mind so because fishing started that day the the next day oh the next day okay, okay. so we go sleep we come out our period or the amount of time that we're allowed to fish is four and a half hours long. Now, 
what that means is like you can't have your net in the water otherwise you're gonna get like a ten thousand dollar fine which is a lot <laughs> i don't know how broke you guys are but i am broke <laughs> so anyway so you can only have your net in the water for four and a half hours now we go out there and the weather was like bad but it wasn't like super bad so if you've ever like watched deadliest catch that's not what we're doing and they're in like much bigger boats and obviously they're out in the bering sea which bristol bay is a part of the bering sea but it's a little bit protected by being you know covered by a little bit of in you know bit of land on either right. side and everything you're not in the middle of the ocean with, right you know yeah 50 foot swells and <laughs> raining <laughs> sideways no and, it's raining sideways yeah but some um, dude that just got off parole smoking <laughs> a cigarette off the edge no it's just me another 24 year old and his 15 year old brother nice that's our crew real tough guys so um anyway anytime that you have swells or waves that are taller than the width of your boat you're in trouble right so um we go out and they're like you know four three four foot swells and not not terrible and obviously it's raining sideways and it's 48 degrees i was about to say it's alaska well and this year in particular is just so cold yeah so we go out and we set our net and the net just starts and we, we set them like perpendicular to the beach because of the fish swim along the shoreline. Right. Mm -hmm. And the net is a gill net. So the fish, it looks like a soccer net and they swim partway right. in it and their heads get stuck or whatever. Yeah. Then like, you have to hand pick every single salmon out of the net. So maybe I can airdrop you footage and then you can put that in the yeah well thing. i'll try i've never done that before but i did want to do that with yeah. an episode or two I've, I've got stuff okay so anyway we go and set the net and the net just starts like lighting up okay and we're like awesome first day of fishing let's go set another net <laughs> bad idea we go set this net right we set the other one we run over to the tender which is like the big those are the actual deadliest catch boats or whatever and they haul our fish off for us and then put them into their like their big refrigerated water system mm -hmm. and uh then we get a ticket of like how much fish we caught so anyways we go over there we fill our bins full of ice and water so that the second we pick them it goes into a slush and uh we come back to the net we're sitting there just chilling we're like oh, yeah we got we got some fish right four and a half hours of fishing so we might as well let the nets fish we're sitting there watching it and we're like, we should probably start picking this net because it's kind of like getting a little full. <laughs> and so <laughs> we start picking through the net and we get like three quarters of the way through the net and we have to go deliver. And that's like, that's great, but it's usually a bad sign when you have two nets in the water. <laughs> that's very unmanageable. <laughs> For three guys, and one of them <laughs> has is to drive. a teenager. Yeah, yeah. And somebody has to drive the boat back and well, deliver. We're, we're just in, the, we're, all three of us are in the boat. Oh, so so you're, like you're just, in the ocean. So you're just leaving the nets. The nets, they're and, still fishing. And just hoping that you don't get even more fish. Even more slammed, yeah. And unfortunately, that happens. So we go and deliver, and we're like, okay, we're doing good or whatever. It was super cocky. It's the first day of the year. 
Okay. We come back and we pick through the other net and we have to go deliver again. So then we go deliver. And, and, by, can, and by deliver, you mean just drop it off at the cannery? At, at the tenders. Okay. At the tenders. So they're only like, you know, at most like 300 yards away. Are the and tenders, do you guys own the tenders or is that like a, the cannery owns the tenders? Or right. like they and the cannery just counts pounds as you drop them off and just tallies them up for you. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. So you, you go over there and they have like a big crane and our our uh those bins that I talked about, they have bags in them. So then they we just hook it up to the crane and they weigh it on a scale and then drop it in the, the fish hole. So, anyways, we go deliver again. We go back and we keep picking. And then we deliver again <laughs> and we start looking at the time and we're like, there's only two hours left and we can't keep fish out of these nets. And, you know, we start getting a little worried. And so we go or like we make the decision that like the best thing that we can do is to flag our nets. Now, what that means is like the current runs pretty hard over there with the tide. So when the tide's coming in, it's going towards the rivers. When it's going out, it's going out towards the ocean. So because we have our, our nets perpendicular to the beach and they're both anchored, if you unclip the net from one of the anchors, it like flags in the current, right? Yeah. And because the fish run perpendicular to the shore. You just won't hit them. Theoretically. <laughs> yes, that's the idea. So anyways, we flag both of the nets, leaving the anchors on the beach because Anchors are like 44 pounds and the waves started getting like pretty gnarly at this time. It was like five footers. And anyways, the, the nets flagged and we just sit there and we watch this net that's supposed to be not catching any fish. Just, I mean, so many fish hitting it, like stupid amounts of fish. <laughs> I've never seen this many fish in my life. Okay. We're sitting there watching it and we're like, oh my gosh. Like, this is bad. We have two hours to get these nets out of the water and all of these fish delivered. And so, keep in mind, we have two nets and they're on two different sites. So they're about, you know, 150 yards away from each other. So we drive over to the other net. We start picking through it and we're like, oh my gosh, okay, like we can't even do this. We have to round haul the net, which means you don't pick all the fish out of it. You just pull net and fish in the boat all at once and make this giant mess in your boat and you say well we'll figure it out later at least our gear is out of the water right because that's all you'll get fined for if your gear is still in the water after the period exactly you uh, can't have a buoy in the water okay but you can have fish in your boat that you yep. still need to work through and everything yeah. like that you'll get in trouble by the cannery because oh, that's cause... bad fish quality uh, okay so you, you really don't want to do it i've only ever round hauled twice in my life okay. and that was one of them so Anyway, we, we round haul or start round hauling. We get a third of the way through the net and then we start having waves come over the side of the boat because the <laughs> boat was so full of fish. Like the three of us literally could not pull any more fish in the boat. We could not put the, you know, get the net back out of the water. Like I'm telling you, like the, the boat was flush. Okay. It was so bad. I look up. So wait, is tide going out? Or? The tide was going in when so, we so, started, when we flagged the nets. The, so it, the water's just starting to get deeper and deeper and deeper too. So like, well, theoretically, the problem was <laughs> that the tide had now switched. Okay. So now the tide is going out. So now our net, 
the other net that was once, yeah, you know, it would be beautiful if it just did that. But instead it like crumples on itself. Okay. And then the bottom of the net grabs the anchor and pulled the anchor up. <laughs> so, so keep think of this situation, okay? You're one third of the way round hauling one net. You can't pull any more fish in. You can't put the net back out in the water because everything is stuck. You're exhausted. You look up and you see your other net floating out to sea. <laughs> and you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> what do we even do? Like, oh, what are we going to do? It's literally floating out to sea and we're stuck. And so you can't just sit around and do nothing because the tide's going out and now your boat's going to go dry and it's, you know, it'll start floating again in 12 hours. <laughs> so, um, you know, when the tide comes back in. So I look at uh, Chandler, uh, no, Nelson, and Nelson's 15. This is his <laughs> first year, like, fully fishing. He thinks we're going to die, <laughs> you know, and it's like, dude, like, we all can swim, and thankfully, you know, we're, like, we're shore fishermen, so it's like, we're, like, 50 yards away from the shore. At least we aren't going to die. Yeah. So we go... And I look at Chandler and he's like, I, like, we don't, we literally don't know what to do. I've never been in this situation before. So I was like, look, dude, we got to cut the net in half. <laughs> like, I don't know. We're just going to have to go full pirate mode and just take a big serrated knife and just slice this puppy, you know? And so, you know, he tries calling somebody down the beach to help us. And, you know, they've all got problems because nobody expected this many fish that night. And, so we're like, okay. So we end up cutting the net in half and we go drive over to the other net that's all tangled and messed up. We grab onto the buoy and we drag it closer towards the beach so that the anchor can hold in shallower water. And then when the tide goes down, the net is sitting on the beach and not in the water. Okay. So, you know, better... A little gray area there, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> it's not good, but yeah. it's... It's not illegal is the thing. So then we go tie up to the tender and imagine a crew of people coming to a boat, like coming up to your boat with a boat full of fish in net. And they ask, hey, do you have two more knives? Because we need to cut all these fish out of the net. <laughs> and they're like, uh, okay. And so we sat there at the tender and just cut fish out of the net. How expensive is this net? Like four grand. <laughs> nice. Yeah. The nice thing is. Did is you we, lose money on that net? No. Nice. Yeah. So that net, I'll get to totals later on. But so then, you know, that net's now ruined mm -hmm. at least a third of it. And so we put it in the front of the boat. We run over to the one that we dragged closer to the beach that was all tangled up. And we get out and Chandler and I kind of assess the situation and we're like, we think we can pick all the fish out of this net and at least save it so that we don't have to like ruin two nets. Um, because at that point we, you know, we decided like, okay, like all of our gear is going to be out of the water. We're not going to get a fine. And now we have 10 hours before the tide comes back in to get all of the fish out of the net, you know? And so Chandler and I start picking the fish in the mud 
on our hands and knees for like five hours. And that was so miserable. I like, I've, I've never been more exhausted in my life. Like I did a 50 K ski race in high school and that only lasted like two and a half hours. And this was like 13 in total. <laughs> and then the most stressed I've ever been was another commercial fishing story that I'll probably tell about a bear stalking me. And that's the most stress I've ever been, but that only lasted like an hour. And this was like 13. So anyways, we pick all the fish out of that net and, and we throw them into piles and the waves were so bad that one of us had to like stay in the boat and just drive up and down the beach. Cause we couldn't keep the boat like on the shore because mm-hmm. otherwise it'd get pinned and stuck and whatever. So there's just the two of us picked the fish threw them in piles. And then we had to, you know, shuffle them back and forth or like whatever you call like carry them back to the boat, you know, <laughs> two in each hand kind of thing. <laughs> My fingers hurt so bad. So then we go deliver all of that partway through. We come back, fill up the boat a bit more, go deliver that, go to the other net, which we thought was in half and ended up being two thirds. Um, and then I just took a, a knife to that one and cut all the fish out of that net. Part of the reason why that net was so problematic with like trying to round haul it was because it was sunk. So like there were so many fish in the net that like the buoyancy of like the top cork line that which usually floats, which is like, it was literally stuck on the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> so the fishing game would have never known. <laughs> Except our like our one buoy out there. Yeah. Cut the buoy. <laughs> Mark it on a GPS. You know, honestly, <laughs> not a bad idea. In total, we picked six thousand pounds of salmon off of the beach on our hands and knees, and we caught thirteen thousand pounds in that total one day. that night. And four our nets were in the water for four and a half hours. So thirteen thousand pounds of salmon. How much does the average salmon at Redway? This year it was five point five pounds. So wait, let me do, oh, this doesn't even have a calculator. Yeah, I can do it. What is that? Like 5.5 and 13,000? I mean, you're talking, I mean, what is that? Like 2,000, almost almost two and a half thousand fish? Yeah, almost two and a half, like 2,363. Man, that mental math was baller. Yeah, it was pretty uh, good. Uh, yeah, almost two and a half thousand fish in one day. That's insane. In four and a half hours. <laughs> it took us... Then 13 hours. I mean, it took us 13 hours to pick all of those fish, but we caught them in four and a half hours. That's crazy. So then, you know, th- there was one point at the tender, like the waves were so bad. Our boat was weighed down so heavy because we had so many fish in it because we couldn't manage that. Like I was sitting there in the back of the boat as we're like waiting for the crew to come out on the tender. And I'm watching waves come up over the back of the motor. <laughs> into the boat and i just like looked at chandler i was like we need to get these fish off the boat otherwise (laughs) this boat is going to sink (laughs) i'm sitting there with a bucket like throwing water water. it's like for every one bucket that i'm bailing there's like eight coming (laughs) over it like a full swell it's not even like splash it's like a full wave coming over (laughs) yeah that was scary so how many fish do you catch in a whole season then um so we are not to brag we're a little bit of like highliners as far as like our beach goes i think um 
typically set net permits will average around like 40,000, you know, at least the past four years or so they've averaged like 40,000 pounds in a season. We got 13 in a, in four hours. Um, we, we average, you know, close to like 70 or so. Is it just because of location? A little bit of location. Uh, also Chandler and I, uh, try to fish as intelligently as possible. Um, you know, thinking of like when to fish. Cause there's also another permit in the bay called drifting and they're allowed to fish with like, we're allowed 50 fathoms of net and they're allowed 150. Um, and they can go wherever the fish are. They don't have, they're not allowed to have an anchor on their net. And so, uh, they end up catching a lot more. They averaged like a hundred to 130 per permit usually. <laughs> so, and there's a lot of them in our district. So we kind of like try and figure out when they're not fishing mm. so that we can, you know, time or like where the fish are when they're not fishing. So you have to like time like, okay, you know, they stopped fishing four hours ago and that was at the line. And so four hours of time fish moving towards the river yeah. and then we'll start fishing kind of anyway, that kind of stuff. But that makes sense. So are there are a lot of bears then where you guys are fishing. Where I used to fish. So, okay. yes. So this is your second site. Yes. So I, I did three years with uh, a family friend on the Quijack River, and then I've done four years in the Nushigak Bay, which are two different districts in Bristol Bay. So where I used to fish, it's like spitting distance from Katmai. Mm. If anybody's ever heard of Katmai National Park, that's where you go to take pictures of six bears in one, one picture <laughs> yeah like brooks falls is like pretty close to where we used to fish and we're out at the line the farthest point where you can commercial fish mm -hmm. out in the middle of nowhere in this burned down cannery <laughs> is where we fished and so yeah i mean you're essentially like shore fishermen so you're on the beach all the time and bears are also on the beach looking for fish. You know, we would frequently have like, you know, bears come to the net and like eat fish out of our nets and you like bang <laughs> on the side of the boat. Like, yeah. I hear it. Like, <laughs> and these are like big grizzlies too. These aren't yeah, like little yeah. brown bears that run around. No, no. I mean big. little black bears that run around Eagle river or anything. No, these are, these are big bears feeding on salmon. So, Anyway, this bear story, uh, I'll tell the bear story. Um, we are, I mean, like, I mean, there's so many bear stories. I mean, we've had that same year, we had a bear, like, break into our house and, like, <laughs> like break into the fridge and, like, eat half of the crap in our fridge and then bust out the window. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to make you sleep well at night. I sleep like a baby. <laughs> You're so tired. You don't even care. In fact, some days, you knowing that you only have like two hours of sleep and you have to wake up at 3 a.m., going out by a bear isn't so bad. <laughs> yeah, at least it would end. But uh, anyway, so basically we had like an issue with our boats and we had to switch the motors on, on the boats. Um, and... We ended up doing it out on like this front beach 
away from where we normally park all the boats because there's like this little river that we call the creek where we park all the boats because it's like sheltered from all the waves and stuff. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we park the boats out on this buoy. And then as the tide goes out, the boats are laying on flat land. You swap the motors, tide comes back in, you drive them back into the creek, problem solved. But there was a storm that night, which always makes stuff more complicated. So I wake up and, you know, our captain's like, hey, man, like, I need you to go out with my sister and, you know, uh, bring these boats back. So I'm like, okay, like, you know, no problem. This will be a quick trip. So I go out in shorts. I don't even put on socks. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever put on weight, uh, wet waders oh, in, the in shorts with no socks, but it's not fun. And so she's carrying the gun because, you know, we have a pistol, of course. You're going out at night on what, the beach. What kind of, that's not like a 45? Yeah, or 45. Like- Which I've, I've learned, like, you know, 45 is great, but I would rather have a bazooka. <laughs> um, anyway, so... We start walking out and you're like walking through, you know, it's like this old boardwalk that's like, you know, not very wide. It's probably about as wide as this table. And there's just tall alders all around you. And, you know, I've been walking with, you know, my best friend Jake and like looking over and being like, is that a dog? (laughs) (laughs) That's not a dog. We should get out of here. This bear's just like munching on a fish. So... Anyways, we're walking through the alders and we come up to this big bluff. It's like, you know, 20 feet tall. And it's just like sand that goes down to the beach. And this this bluff acts as like, like a sound barrier. So nothing on our side of the bluff can hear anything on the beach. And nothing on the beach can hear anything from the bluff. Mm. So we converge at the point of this bluff. The same exact time that like an adolescent grizzly is coming up on the same trail so we're like literally 10 feet from this thing as it just like pops up it's got a fish like wiggling around in its mouth and you know all three of us just jump back immediately i i grab the gun out of maya's hand and you know rack one in the chamber and i'm sitting there in the bear i mean like i'm just so close i probably could have counted the eyelashes on this thing (laughs) It turns around and runs down the beach away from our sights, you know. And so I'm sitting there, you know, obviously blood's pumping a little bit. Piss is running down. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) No, but I'm like, look, he ran away from our sights. He's got a fish in his mouth. You know, we're fine. So we're like, you know, game on. Let's just keep going. So we walk down the bluff and start walking towards our site. As we're walking down there, you know, a mama bear and two cubs are on the beach. You know, they run up. I keep this in the middle of the night in Alaska, so it's like, you know, kind of dark. Yeah. Um, so they run up, and I'm, you know, at this point, I'm thinking like, why did I not put on socks? My <laughs> my waders have like three years of fish smell worked into them. I'm sure I taste pretty good. Uh, all this kind of stuff. And so we walk over to the site and, uh, you know, once we're almost there, Maya looks up and she's like, is that another bear down the beach? And I look and I'm like, I don't know. Like, 
the grass, sometimes the grass breaks off of the bluff or whatever, and you get this giant ball of grass and dirt on the beach. I'm like, I don't know. It kind of looks like grass. And then all of a sudden, like, the grass, you know, starts moving. <laughs> I'm like, oh, gosh, that is a big bear. And so I'm like, okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm not leaving you on the beach because that is uh, very irresponsible. And because Maya's like just graduated high school at this point. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to stay on the beach and our boats are like getting tossed around in the waves. So we have this little like sea kayak. (laughs) (laughs) This whole operation is a great idea, by the way. So we have this little sea kayak. I'm like, okay, you get in the kayak, you're going to paddle out to these boats and then you're going to come pick me up, you know, and you know, we'll go drive the boats back together so Maya starts paddling and like it took a long time between like the wind and the waves like yeah it took her a long time and honestly like it would have taken me forever as well you know it's just the nature of nature so anyways as I'm sitting there on the beach this bear goes and checks we're like the second or like third to last sight before the end of the line okay so there's theoretically three nets there but none of us are fishing and so it's just like our ropes and our buoys and stuff and the bears know where the fish are so bear one comes up you know or you know he checks site one there's no fish so he moves down the beach closer to me 150 (laughs) yards away checks site two no fish now at this point i mean this bear is is big he decides, well, whatever this skinny little thing over at this third site is, he's got to move because I need to check that place for fish. And so he, instead of like walking straight at me, does this big loop around closer to the bluff. So he like pins me up against the ocean <laughs> and I'm sitting there knee deep in the water like, looking over my shoulder. I'm like, Maya, Maya, hurry. You know, I'm like praying out loud. I'm like, this, I don't want to shoot this bear because I don't think it's going to die. You know, all this <laughs> stuff. You know, I'm going to die. And this bear just keeps like walking towards me. It's head low. Oh my God. I'm like freaking out. And all of a sudden I just hear like crashing of the waves up against the boat. And I turn around and Maya is like right behind me. So I like wade out into the water as close as, you know, I'm almost going over my waders. I jump into the boat. I grab the, the running line, the, the rope that goes, you know, with our buoys perpendicular to beach. And I just start pulling us out as fast as I can. Well, the problem is like the wind and the waves are so bad. I'm like hardly even moving and my (laughs) arms are like shaking, you know? And so I'm like, my turn on the motor and just like drive towards the buoy while I, you know, pull ourselves out. So eventually we like, I'm not even like looking at the bear at this point, just trying to get away from said bear. And I get out to the buoy and we like clip up and I look back and the bear is like standing there in the water exactly where I was standing, just (laughs) staring at us. We're only like, you know, 30 yards from this thing, 20, 25 yards from this thing as it's just like staring at us. So still only like 10 seconds away from it. Just, I mean, at this point I was okay because I knew that at that point he would have to swim and you could shoot him a couple times while he's swimming. Yeah. 
it's hard to charge at swimming, <laughs> I think. I hope. So anyway, I, I get more comfortable. But at that point, I, you know, I'm, that's when, you know, pee running down the lake, you know, <laughs> all that good stuff. So anyway, we sit there and, you know, we try starting the other motor. The motor won't work. <laughs> so now we have these two skiffs. We're out in the middle of the night in the storm because we missed the window and now it's like stormy and we have to now drive both of these skiffs back into the creek we can't you know say like well we'll go we'll do it tomorrow because we can't go back onto the beach there's a bear <laughs> there and so i was like okay this is what we're gonna do we're gonna keep the boats tied and we're gonna drive both of them together like like this <laughs> which I've never done before. And we're going to drive it back into the creek like that. And so, um, anyway, because the one motor wouldn't work, Maya jumped into the other boat up into the bow and has, you know, a flashlight or whatever, trying to spot buoys and running lines so that I don't like run over them and get tangled and then pushed into the, the beach. So anyways, we drive back and, you know, with the wind and the waves and everything like that, it was literally like trying to steer a wooden roller coaster <laughs> with like, you know, you're on a tiller. So it's like steering a dining room table, you know, <laughs> if like my arm is like shaking the whole time. Anyways, we drive back into the, the creek, we anchor up and now we have to, you know, like you can hear the dogs barking in camp because all the dogs like you know, chase the bears away and stuff. And they're just going berserk in camp. <laughs> I'm like, okay, now I can't leave my on the beach again. I'm like, why don't we both get in the sea kayak at the same time? And then we'll paddle back so that we're just together. So we get in this thing and there's like, you know, we're that far above the water and there's <laughs> still like waves in the Creek. So like literally we're having waves come into our laps as we're like paddling back, you know, <laughs> And then we had to walk the, you know, half mile, quarter mile back to the camp through the alders again, like Jason Bourne, <laughs> gun drawn. I didn't sleep. Yeah. That, the it, adrenaline yeah. just pumping. Like literally it only lasted like probably an hour, hour and a half. And like, yeah, my adrenaline was so shot that like I literally sat up in bed. I wrote the entire thing down. It was insane so then we went back on the beach later that day and you know the pin, the print was like literally the size of the ipad oh and he's just like staring at me like dude dang bears. that's nice so to kind of pull in the book then yeah. I, so this book <laughs> now it's good we yeah we read a book yeah so the book american catch kind of goes over three different um these fisheries mm -hmm. so it goes over the oysters in new york shrimp in the gulf of mexico and then bristol bay which is mm -hmm. why i wanted to pick it one i think seafood in general is really interesting the whole premise of the book i found really interesting mm -hmm. not a huge fan of the book to be honest but still found the whole premise really interesting and he does talk about bristol bay for quite a bit and so i got mm -hmm. actually the one that i want to start on and he talks about i mean pebble mine which we grew mm -hmm. up hearing all about Pebble Mine, there are stickers on every car that said stop Pebble Mine and Pebble Mine mm -hmm. never went through, right? As far as I understand. No. no. Yeah. It's but, like almost everything but dead. Yeah. There's like 
a thread of hope for people, but it's not really going to happen. But with Bristol Bay, he talks about like the sustainability that still mm-hmm. exists with Bristol Bay. And that's mm-hmm. why he chooses it as an example within his book. And so I wanted to hear from you, like, what do they do to make Bristol Bay sustainable? And what does that mean for the fishery and mm-hmm. for you as somebody who goes back every single year mm-hmm. and tries to catch more and more fish? Yeah. So like a lot of people think that, um, the primary threat to fisheries is overfishing, but I would argue that the primary threat to fisheries is habitat loss. So, you know, once the fish lose the space to reproduce and live, it doesn't, you know, whether or not you fish them or not, they're going to die and they're not coming back. So that's, you know, the whole pebble mine issue is that it's like destroying the habitat. Um, so as far as like the sustainability of the fishery and like how it works, like I said before, like there's Alaska department of fishing game that, you know, to the best of their ability, they count the number of fish that go into the rivers. They understand you know, with the habitat that they have, the lakes and rivers that they have, what that uh, ecosystem can hold, right? So how many fish can the ecosystem hold? And then as well, like, if we were to take some of those fish, what is the maximum that we could take before it is overfished and we start losing fish, right? So what's really cool about salmon in particular, right, is that they go back to the place where they were born. And it's really easy to, I wouldn't say it's really easy, but it's easier than some other fish species to see where you at, at at like a population level. Mm -hmm. So Bristol Bay has no hatcheries, no farmed fish. It's like, as far as the ecosystem goes, it's like basically untouched. And the the entire place is like, I mean, it's a giant like puddle, you know, there's like a million lakes mm-hmm. and like tons of river systems. And so like the amount of habitat that you have for those salmon is like better than anywhere else in the world. And it's just like pristine. Like you go up into those lakes and you'll never see a piece of trash. You can go places where probably no one's ever been. And that was his argument in the book, Mm -hmm. too, was that Pebble Mine was going to destroy that. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I didn't really like about the book, um, especially when it came to Bristol Bay, was I felt like he conflated climate change as Mm -hmm. a whole topic Mm -hmm. into the argument of Pebble Mine. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like me personally, I'm not, I don't know, I'm not like, climate change isn't at the top of my priority list for like politically Mm-hmm. And it's because I feel like climate change is such a huge umbrella that just mm-hmm. like lumps everything in and they're like, we got to stop, you know, driving cars and everything needs to be electric. And then in the, in the same thing, they lump Pebble Mine into it. And I feel like he did that in the book a little bit. He kind of talked about how he's like, all these conservative fishers are going to have to change their mind on climate change because it's going to affect their livelihood. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like that was a little... I don't know. I feel like that's almost like a, it's got to be one of those fallacies. Yeah. Yeah. Cop out or something like that to the whole argument, because I do feel like in the climate change umbrella, I am very pro take care of like 
take care of the waters. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, like there's earthly stewardship. Exactly. Not so much, you know, like we all are going to have a million wind farms all over Idaho, which are terrible for birds. Yes. But I do think like, I, I felt like that was a little disingenuous because I do feel like the people of Bristol Bay were still very much, I mean, growing up in Alaska, most of Alaska was very, very against mm-hmm. Pebble Mine. Cause at one point he, he talks about Anwar and he's like, well, all of Alaska is still super pro Anwar, but very anti Pebble Mine. And he's like, they just don't understand the benefits. And I'm like, well, I don't little, know if you've it's ever a little been different. to Anwar. <laughs> There's nothing there. Yeah. Again, I'm like very pro stewardship of the things that like generate yeah. life. Mm hmm. But the North Slope, I mean, literally has... It's and, a desert. Yeah. And since the pipeline... And since the pipeline's yeah. gone in, the caribou population's actually gone up, mm-hmm. which is crazy. So, like, again, I, I just felt like that was a little bit of a false conclusion of the book and one of the reasons why I was like, eh, yeah. I don't know. Because I do feel like we do need to take care of Bristol Bay. Because of the other examples that he gave in the book kind of moving backwards in the book because Bristol Bay is the last thing that he talks about in the book. But the mm-hmm. second thing that he talks about in the book is the shrimp farms, which I found absolutely entertaining. That was actually mm-hmm. my favorite section of mm-hmm. the book was when it, when he talked about shrimping mm-hmm. because yeah, I mean, it just goes to show not so much again, not so much the umbrella of climate change, but what happens when you introduce oil spills and when you introduce overfishing and when you introduce like completely unregulated fisheries and things like that which i am very much opposed to but not so much again kind of lumping it in with everything Mm -hmm. i think everything just kind of needs to be nuanced and looked at Mm -hmm. yeah you know like pebble mine is like pretty much dead um there are still things that are affecting Bristol Bay. Um, this book is a little old. It's like, you know, probably like eight years old now. Um, yeah. I, as far as like the climate change thing goes, like I can think of one thing. It's like, yeah, the, the environment is changing for sure. Um, because more of like glaciers are melting and things like that. The the lakes out there are getting deeper. Um, and because of that sockeye salmon uh, spawning grounds are actually growing. And so like scientists right now legitimately don't even understand how many, like every year for the past like six years, salmon have come back in like record numbers. We broke the, the record two years in a row. Last year was like, a small year and it still broke like the previous 20 year average. Um, and that's just for, you know, sockeye, but because of that sockeye salmon habitat expanding, uh, king salmon habitat is shrinking. Mm. And so like, you know, that's one thing that I can see of like, you know, climate change is having an effect, but ultimately like I'm kind of thinking as far as that goes, like there are just winners and losers rather than, which is super sad because kings are my favorite salmon. But, um, you know, it just kind of, I don't think is the the biggest issue that's facing Bristol Bay, in my opinion, is, yeah. is climate change. But 
Yeah, I mean, that's kind of interesting, though, that there's actually more fish that think when things warm up. They, they don't know how many fish that fishery can hold. Every year we go over our escapement goals and they're, you know, the escapement goal is there because they're like, or, you know, there'd be an escapement limit and they're like, okay, we don't know if the habitat there can actually hold that many fish or are we going to like crash it? You know, everything's going to die in the lakes because there's no food for the salmon fry. And then in three years we're going to have like no fish, Hmm. but you know, millions of salmon go up and they're like oh gosh that's a lot and then three years later there's like even more fish yeah what the heck so so i guess outside of then the bristol bay section of the book Mm -hmm. um because obviously you're probably pretty familiar with all that kind of stuff you probably knew Mm -hmm. everything they were talking about um most of the people yeah (laughs) yeah which is crazy (laughs) that you actually knew some of the people in the stories yeah um the oysters and the Shrimp. Which one did you find more interesting? So I didn't like as far as like what I'm going to be doing for work. I've been doing a lot of research into these things beforehand. The one that I didn't know, I actually didn't even know that New York was the largest oyster bed in the world. Yeah. Before, you know, like the industrial revolution. Yeah. I didn't know that that either. Yeah. I didn't know that. And then I also didn't know, I mean, just how awful that it has got. Like that they yeah. literally said you, you're not allowed to eat oysters anymore that come from yeah. here because they could be poisonous. Right. Yeah, that to me is insane. Like I understand, you know, there are red tides, mm-hmm. you know, so like when you have like toxic algal blooms, all those kind of bivalve filter feeders, you're not supposed to eat them in months that end in like why or something like that. I can't remember. Don't quote me on that. But um, the reason why you're not supposed to do that is because you'll get uh, paraphylactic shellfish poisoning or whatever, PSP. Um, But to think that pollution causes year-round PSP is kind of insane. And again, this was the kind of... This was the kind of climate change, global warming, kind of that topic that I am very against because this was this was not pollution it's not just like climate change it's just straight pollution it was years and years and years of new york dumping waste and crap and oil and everything back into their water system to the point where they literally destroyed the largest the largest known oyster fishery in the world yeah which is crazy Mm -hmm. but it is cool I guess to see in the book kind of maybe, you know, changing some of my thoughts, but it is cool to see kind of, I liked the way that he chose the three different fisheries Mm -hmm. and that one was completely destroyed. One was almost kind of saved, but like halfway through they realized what they were doing and they introduced regulation show that it wasn't completely destroyed. Mm -hmm. And then one is still pristine. And then Alaska fishing game has done really good of Mm -hmm. keeping it that way. So you kind of, it kind of showed three different outcomes based on like mm-hmm. no regulation, late regulation, and just like being on the ball. Mm-hmm. And I felt like it was really cool because Alaska's fishery, like you said, is growing year to year to year. And I feel like, I don't know, there's definitely a food crisis in the world. Mm-hmm. And not so much that I think. 
I think I it's think, a crap food crisis. Exactly. Yeah. I don't think that there's like a quantity crisis as much anymore. I mean, I think there are in definitely some parts of the world, mm-hmm. but especially in the United States, I don't think it's a quantity problem. It's a, you know, commercial farming. Quality. It's a, you know, all, you know, pesticides, all those kinds of things that are really bad mm-hmm. with our food that the ocean solves a significant part of that problem. Like there's mm-hmm. just so much food in the ocean mm-hmm. and all you have to do is take care of it. Mm-hmm. And that's like completely outlined in the book. Like take care of You don't take care of it. You kill an entire thing of oysters. Do you like oysters? I've actually never had one. I've, I really want to try them though. I've never had one either. Um, which is crazy to say I've never had one. My brother-in-law loves them. We go out really? when every time we go get sushi and stuff, he mm-hmm. orders just a plate of oysters along his along with his roll. Oh, and I'm like, eh, I don't know. I like clams, so I don't know why I wouldn't yeah. like oysters. It's raw. Yeah, but I don't know. I've never tasted oysters. I'd imagine that they're probably. I think the thing that gets me with oysters is every time. Yeah, it's the texture. Yeah, that's yeah. why I like yeah. whitefish so much. Is because it like. It's all the same. It kind of feels meaty. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like even it feels more meaty than even salmon feels meaty, in my opinion. Like whitefish I've, just kind of feels like a yeah, meat. yeah. Depending on the whitefish, like I think it's funny that like people describe like good things. They'll be like, "Yeah, this fish is nice and flaky." I'm like, why that word? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like dandruff. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm going into the seafood industry, and I don't like that word, but. Uh, yeah, honestly, you know, after living in Japan for two years, I kind of got used to seafood textures. That's not really like the thing that bothers me. So I feel like I would like it. Yeah. The other thing they talked about in the book that I actually found super interesting was the amount of seafood that Americans eat on average, because I feel like like 16 pounds a year. Um, I pulled it up and I actually got more updated things because okay. like you said, the book was like eight years ago, eight years old. And yeah. this earliest figures that I could find was 2021. So it's a couple of years old, mm-hmm. but it is 20 pounds of seafood per capita or like per person per year, mm-hmm. 20, 20 pounds. And I think I like crush that out of the park personally. <laughs> I love well, seafood. I think honestly that comes from Pollock. No. Pollock is is it not? No. So number one. So your guess would have been Pollock. No, 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 no. I, okay. If I were to actually, I would say the increase is due to Pollock because all the Pollock fisheries no. got deals with like McDonald's and stuff. I mean, maybe. But, okay, but if I were to actually rank them, I think the number one fish that we eat is shrimp. Yeah. By a landslide, yeah. five point nine pounds out of the twenty. That's like one. It's almost a third. Yeah. Uh, almost a third of the total um, seafood consumed per year. Shrimp. Yeah. Which Number, I, do, I do love me some shrimp. So I oh, can dude, get it. I love shrimp too. It's awesome. But I also don't really know how everybody's just balling out on shrimp. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like if you're, I, mean? I don't know. I, I, again, I feel like everybody would just eat like a cheap cut of like tuna or something like that you know what i mean like oh, like yeah. you know i just don't understand how so many people eat shrimp all the time if that's like your that's that's a third of the consumed seafood and oh i just don't almost. think that people eat it that's true you know just it's seafood in general and and you know you got to think like we're talking about it mostly like mostly like coastal cities probably I, I would be curious to know like what the difference is between you know florida versus 
you know, Kansas. Yeah, that's true. Other than Red Lobster, you know, <laughs> or Long John Silver's or McDonald's. But uh, yeah, so I would yeah, say shrimp, shrimp uh, salmon. And then, yep, tuna. Yep. yep, that's the order. Shrimp, salmon, tuna. And salmon and tuna combined equal shrimp. Yeah. I know. Everybody on average eats 3.4 pounds of salmon per year. Pretty sure I've had that this month. <laughs> I mean, I brought home a ton of salmon this year. And we eat it all the time. I mean, every year we bring home... Because we go up every year in the mm-hmm. summer to go back up and fish. From, and we bring home at least 50 pounds every year. It's such good stuff. It's so it, good for you, it's too. It's so good for yeah. you. It's crazy. Again, it. and compared to, like, some of the other numbers that I was looking up was, um, so 20 pounds of seafood per year is the average. How much do you think beef and chicken? Oh, I, I think beef, pork, and chicken combined is, like, 90, right? No, so... Beef alone is almost 60. It's 58.9 pounds. Uh Chicken is 98.8 pounds of chicken on average. Yeah. Um, And then pork is another 51.6. So beef, chicken, and pork account for more than 10 times your seafood consumption per year. Which is crazy because seafood has so much. It's way healthier. For yeah, you. so yeah. many more health benefits. Yeah, especially like fresh seafood. Mm-hmm. It's just so good so for you. What do you think fresh seafood is? What would you? Because I think I'm probably like a little bit a buzzword. Well, I feel like I'm a little bit skewed. My fresh mm-hmm. seafood is stuff that I caught. Yeah, I mean that's obviously better. <laughs> you know the origin of it. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, you know I caught it in Kenai, or you know we went out and got shrimp. Mm-hmm. you know or you know we caught halibut mm-hmm. in our freight we had to buy a chest freezer this year and it's full of halibut rockfish and salmon that we brought home from alaska that we caught two months ago right you right. know what i mean like that's my fresh yeah that's my fresh seafood now fresh seafood from anywhere else like when they claim fresh my guess is that it had to have been frozen within a certain amount of time mm-hmm. and then it doesn't matter how old it is past the freeze date that would be my guess but, I mean, I don't know if that's true. So, I mean, I don't know, like, the industry term for it. But, um, you know, freezing is one of those things that confuses me. Like, I don't know why people think that freezing it is bad because all of your fish is frozen. No, yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. think freezing is bad. Yeah. So, like, people, you know, when they go to the grocery store and they have all of this, you know, all of the fillets or whatever laid out and it's all thought out. Oh, it's just so disgusting. gross. It's so gross. I do not understand that. Everything it's like should be fresh, fresh, never frozen stuff. It's like, dude, that is like at least a week old. Yeah. yeah. And the like when we fish in Alaska, the goal is is to get it home processed and frozen as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, well, and the commercial fish processors, they actually have uh, flash freezing techniques. Mm-hmm. So it, like it blast chills them and they're like, you know, negative... 40 degrees Celsius or whatever within, you know, minutes. Yeah. And like that, it's so fast that it prevents ice crystals from forming within the meat. Mm-hmm. And like it, it literally is like identical to when you didn't freeze it to when you froze it. But what it does, you know, is it preserves it for a long amount of time. And yeah. so like, you know, one of the things that he talks about in this book, which is insane, is that like all the fish processors in Alaska will like, 
you know, head and gut the salmon, freeze it, ship it over to China. China will then, you know, thaw it out, fillet it, freeze it again, (laughs) ship it back to America. And then they thaw it out and put it on the ice in front of the counter and say, fresh seafood. Like, dude. Yeah. Gross. Well, I think, so we definitely grew up spoiled growing up in Alaska. Yes. And I remember being in Utah for the first time skating Mm -hmm. and thinking it was a summer. I was missing fishing season. I was down there training and I was like, you know what? I miss some salmon. (laughs) And so I ordered salmon. Atlantic farm. I think from village Inn. (laughs) Wrongo bad choice. It was so bad that I have never ordered salmon from anywhere that doesn't touch the sea. The only other time I've ordered salmon has been in Seattle and in Oregon. Mm-hmm. So it's been the only two places. Other than that, I will not order it. And I'm a little bit of a snob, I know, but mm. it just is disgusting. Well, you know, nature is a much better farmer than a handful of Norwegians. That's <laughs> my opinion. Um, but also, like, I mean, they're pumping them full of uh, growth hormones you know, they, they treat them with, uh, you know, fish meal rather than like natural sources of protein that the fish are eating. Well, they and they're actually give them, gray. Like yeah, they're not yeah, they even give them coloration. They're to not make the, the flesh orange. They're not even red. Like yeah. you cut into a salmon in Alaska. It it's is red, bright red. Yeah. And in all this farm stuff, they actually have to dye the food so that mm. it looks like alaskan salmon Mm -hmm. which is disgusting yeah you know and like there are aspects of fish farming that i understand i just say get it out of the ocean you know if you're gonna farm salmon do it on land that way you're not you don't have these giant pins where you know fish are sitting there congregated you know where they attract like hordes of sea lice they develop diseases in a wild environment which then spread to wild species it also just doesn't taste as good like people will say it's like it's the wagyu of the sea it's the most garbage marketing i've ever t- dude that is like choice beef <laughs> or whichever one is the lowest it's so bad it tastes worse than trout in my opinion so is it possible, and I don't know if you know this, but is it possible to introduce new fisheries, like new wild fisheries? Like, could you take salmon from, salmon eggs from one fishery, put them in a freshwater mm-hmm. area somewhere else, and just grow the Bristol Bay fishery somewhere else? Like, uh, how far apart are you saying? Like, other places along the Alaska West Coast? Or are you yeah. saying, like, yeah. So, salmon have there's like a statistical number of like, you know, I don't know. Our brother could explain N whatever that variable is. There's a, you know, amount of fish that don't hit their exact river. So there is like a certain amount of fish every year that go up different rivers. Okay. And so now actually there are uh, pink salmon species that go, you know, as far North as like Barrow, hmm. like way up in the Arctic ocean. So pink salmon in particular, really good at that you know, wandering yeah. stuff makes sense. Cause they don't have to go as far up. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, in the, in the, how they find the river is actually like the smell through the minerals. A big reason why pebble mine is so bad is that if you jack up 
the mineral mm. smell fish, you know, you could potentially lose all of the fish because they won't be able to smell the river where they came from. Okay. So, you know, because they come from shallower water, you know, there's a more, you know, likelihood of wandering. They have done other things. There's actually uh, a variation of um, sockeye salmon here or in Utah called kokanee in Strawberry Reservoir. They've yeah. tried putting salmon species in the Great Lakes, um, you know, and they have like king, silver, and sockeye there, very small. Um, but the biggest thing that I think they need to do is just work on recovering Atlantic salmon in their natural environments rather than worry so much about farming. Mm. So like, I mean, when settlers first came to the New England states, obviously they lived off of oysters and all that jazz, you know, like my conception or not conception, but like my idea of New Englanders was like turkey and corn. No, they were, it was all seafood. It was all seafood. You know, there's stories of them saying like Atlantic salmon runs coming up the Hudson where like they could walk across their back. You know, all, all of the Native Americans relied on seafood. Hmm. And so, you know, their Norway, Scotland, Iceland, they, they all had Atlantic salmon runs. In fact, Scotland used to, um, used to be like a forest hmm. and they logged all of the trees down and cut down the last tree. And, you know, those big trees would have like deep roots that would hold the banks together. You know, Atlantic salmon are big, like, uh, Kings. Yeah. So they need like fast, deep rivers. And when they cut down all the trees, the rivers became more shallow cause they could spread and braid and all, none of the salmon ever came back. Hmm. And that's why it's like flat and grass and there's no salmon there anymore. Yeah. So you think recovery would be better than way better because like i mean you think about like the life of the salmon and it's the same thing with oysters he talks about it with oysters where they they become like this natural barrier to the ocean Mm -hmm. you know the floodplains of the bayou same thing salmon i think are like the coolest species ever because they're born in freshwater they go out to the ocean and rivers have this nasty habit of taking, you know, everything and flushing it out to the ocean. Yeah. And that includes all minerals. So any, you know, salts, minerals, whatever, a lot of nutrients going straight out into the ocean. And so a lot of like river systems are actually like pretty barren of food. Um, and so salmon will go out into the ocean eat up all of those minerals, all of those nutrients, swim it back up the river against nature's course and die. So if you look at like where salmon are, you know, populous, a lot of them are like rainforests and environments that have like tons of megafauna, you know, like bears, moose, deer, mm-hmm. things like that, because it can, it literally is like the lifeblood of those ecosystems. It brings all of the nutrients back from the ocean, puts yeah. it back. So if you were to think like, you know, the Great Lakes, Scotland, Ireland, Norway, all of those places, like not only would it bring food to the people, but it could legitimately repair broken ecosystems. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So that definitely paints a different light to the importance of some of these, yeah. of some of these freshwater. I mean, yeah, I mean, especially salmon, like that's crazy mm-hmm. that they could do that, which is also why like, I agree. Like I just 
farm salmon just seems so gross. Like just bring, cause then you're also missing out. I mean, theoretically you'd be missing out on all of that. The again, environmental that, benefit. that environmental benefit, that travel. Cause they just live in this pool. They grow in this pool. They die in this pool. They get, I, I they assumed, spread more diseases. I assumed, yeah. Dead ones just get flushed out into the ocean and yeah. it's not good. It's just, yeah, not great. So one of the other things that are, is talked about in this book, um, is the amount of seafood that is exported versus the amount of seafood that is eaten inside the United States. So mm-hmm. he talks about that 91% of the seafood eaten in the United States is imported from other countries. And that at the same time we export over 30% of our seafood. It's, it's two thirds. Two thirds. Okay. Yeah. 60%. Yeah. So we just send all of our seafood, our good seafood, our natural seafood. Cause I don't think America does a whole lot of farm fishing. I know that farm salmon, farm it's salmon primarily like, comes from like Norwegian countries, yeah. Scandinavians. Yeah. But so we, we take natural seafood mm-hmm. and we ship it to countries that appreciate it like Japan. Mm-hmm. And then we take well, mostly China. Yeah. China and Japan. Mm-hmm. And then we take nasty farmed fish and super processed fish, and we just consume that as Americans. I felt like that was kind of disgusting. And also, like, yeah. he talks about an example in the book of some fishers up in Bristol Bay that are trying to combat that. And I feel like... The 10 be- clays. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like that would be, because I've talked to you about it before, difficult to do. Yeah. So, I mean, I can talk about that for a little bit. Because you you sell your fish directly to the cannery, and then I assume the cannery just ships it straight to China. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this year, you know, I mean, they talked about, like, fishermen not being able to pay bills. Like, legitimately, that happened this year. You know, there's a lot of uh, permit holders out in Bristol Bay that got screwed over on price. You know, we've averaged you know, a dollar ten on price for the past few years. And that's lower than what it was in the nineties. You know, it, they were getting paid like $2 a pound in the nineties and we just got paid 50 cents. That's crazy because they suck. <laughs> Their business model sucks. That's so, literally it. So why don't more people sell directly? Like if there's this, yeah. I mean, obviously there's a, a market for salmon because mm-hmm. I mean, if you average out 3.4 pounds of salmon per person in the United States, I mean, mm-hmm. you're talking millions and millions of pounds of salmon. So imagine you are not picky about your salmon. Okay. Yeah. You understand the health benefits of it. You want it. Uh, you go to the grocery store and there's sockeye salmon and there's Atlantic salmon. Atlantic salmon's for sale for $12 a pound and sockeye salmon is for sale for $23 a pound. They look the same. Which one are you buying? Probably the cheaper one. Yeah. So the biggest problem in my mind in the industry is that these huge companies rely on that high market price of wild fish, which I do think it should be worth more than farmed fish, but they just hike it up as high as possible Mm. and make it unaffordable. So it becomes a boutique business. And when you have millions of pounds of salmon that you you know processed you sell as much of it as you can in the united states and then 
you sell it to China because you can get giant contracts over there and you know your salmon's going to be bought. Mm. So, you know, people like the 10 clays and Sitka salmon shares and, you know, people like that, that they, they operate on the, the, uh, custom processing side. So they're like processors who will, you know, take your catch. They'll process it for you with your packaging and then you can sell it. But that, you know, that's great for them. And, you know, that's like a, just like a farm raising their own beef and selling it to a couple butchers, but it's not going to fix the industry, mm. you know? So you're kind of, for everyone else, you're pigeonholed in, you know, you can't do anything. Yeah. You know, have you ever thought about going the local route and working with some of those companies to sell your fish and then reaching out to restaurants? Mm -hmm. and so, the one of the biggest problems with it is that you know these guys they rely on grocery stores and fish you know distributors to you know expand their their local uh you know their their catch over or their products over you know their local areas but the problem that happens is then it goes through like three or four hands hmm. so then it that hikes the price up so yeah the market value of salmon goes up for everybody but fishermen don't get paid anymore. So it costs about $2 to raise an Atlantic salmon. Think you got to pay, you got to feed it. You got to pay people to feed it. You got to, you know, have the pins, your facility, all that stuff. So before they even kill the salmon, they're spending $2 a pound. And not $2 a fish, $2 a pound. That is like, that process is done for free in the ocean. And our job as fishermen is to go out and catch those fish. So for the equivalent price of them paying $2 a pound to get fish on their processing tables, Peter Pan, I don't want to burn Peter Pan, but Peter Pan, Trident, Silver Bay, Bumblebee, uh, Ocean Beauty, all of those companies out in Bristol Bay just paid everybody 50 cents. That and then they go so around wrong. and then they go around and sell it for twice the value of Atlantic salmon. Now, I don't think that it's all greed. I think that it, their company, their companies are just fundamentally not able to do, you know, the right thing. Yeah. They're so cluttered. Everything's messed up. And so they sell it to China. Hmm. I feel like there's gotta be a big opportunity there to just buy fish for, and do good by the fishermen, you know, mm -hmm. pay them $6 a pound or whatever for the sam for the fish, process it for a couple bucks per pound, and then sell it for $15 per pound. Like, I don't know, I'm not a, yeah. not a math guy here, but I'm just looking yeah. at this way that they're slicing it. And I yeah. mean, I think you're losing, losing pieces when you're going, you know, to China, China's probably selling it to somebody else to process for a second time and then back to the United States. And then, you know, your shipping costs, all this mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Like there's gotta be an opportunity to just buy fish, package it, ship it down to the United States, down to the lower 48 and just be like, all right, fresh caught salmon. We're going to go. You know, $16 a pound, compete with Atlantic, and it's we're going to do right by fishermen. We're going to do right by the individual. We're going to, like, really try to slim down the operation. Because, I mean, there's no reason to ping it back and forth across the Pacific. It 
eliminates risk for them. Yeah, I get that. So what I am doing, I was about to say, you're about to add to this problem, which is why I wanted to kind of, no, 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 no. Cause you're going to be exporting. You're going to be exporting seafood out of the United States, just mm -hmm. like the problem. And then, mm -hmm. yeah. So I mean, that's, that's, I'll explain. <laughs> so yeah. So what we is are it not, that we really you... don't believe that we are part of the problem. We are part of the solution and I'll tell you why. Okay. Yes, we will be exporting a certain amount of seafood to Asia, but it's specifically Japan and Korea because we have relationships there. We, you know, my team and I in my company, we... So what's the name of your company? Alaska Current Seafoods. Um, we have relationships in Japan. We've lived there. Um, we love the Japanese people. We know that they have this you know, high standard of quality, uh, you know, I love sushi, you know, all of those things. And we want to develop a relationship with Japan. So that is one and South Korea. Um, that's one side of our company, but the main part of our company is actually a vision to like legitimately change the way the seafood industry in America works. So, so, are you so what are you sending to Japan and Korea? Is it going to be salmon? You know, maybe a little bit, but but not much. You know, we're primarily going to work in like uh, sushi products. So, you know, your sea urchin, sea cucumber, um, maybe some rockfish species, you know, a little bit of salmon, stuff like that. But like you're, you're not going to get a high price for those in the United States until there's a demand for it. Once there's a demand, our costs will be cut extraordinarily once, you know, people in America want those products. Would you ever buy salmon from Bristol Bay fishers yes. and fishermen and then ship it to Japan and buy it on like a premium? So instead yes. of, you know, Bristol Bay fishermen not really caring about the salmon that they catch because they're only going to get 50 cents a pound, mm -hmm. you know, they could actually rip gills and, you know, actually... Yes treat the fish well and you could pay mm -hmm. them, you know, three, four bucks a pound. Yes. So the idea, like our, our idea, right, is to eliminate all of the hands that touch the seafood before it gets to the consumer. Now, what that does is it creates affordable seafood for the consumer and it creates a, the ability to pay fishermen honest prices. And so we will be you know, the only quote middleman or whatever, you know, we're doing a legitimate business rather than just like shuffling stuff around and taking a piece. Yeah. Cause you guys, I mean, you're, you're a fisherman too. Yes. I understand what it's like to get paid 50 cents and <laughs> make no money, like yeah. literally no money. So our plan is, uh, we're going to create, you know, an ocean to table service that really connects the consumer to their fishermen. So we're going to have, you know, a network of fishermen that we work with that we're, you know, gradually going to grow. And the way that we're going to, you know, create that relationship is by, you know, building a brand that's recognizable. You know, we'll have information on our fishermen. Our fishermen are going to know what our sales network is so that they can like know where their fish are going. Mm -hmm. And we're also looking to build uh, like fishmongers build stores in the United States that sell our product. That way it's not going to a grocery store to get marked up. 
that's what that way it's not going to you know some fish distributor who then you know takes a slice and then sells it to another grocery store who then you know marks it up on you again you know we'll have you know a store where you'll be able to come in just like a fish market on the coast and you'll be able to see all of our seafood you'll be able to read about all of our fishermen and it's just us you and the fishermen and so you know we're going to build these stores uh you know in the interior united states um in that way you know people who aren't on the coast will have access to seafood and then we're going to work uh with local fishmongers on the coast and instead of like buying them out or pushing them out of business we're gonna you know try and do an affiliate program um where they can run their own business they buy their own seafood they do all of that but they learn you know the marketing techniques from us they can uh take other species of seafood so say for example if you're like in florida and you only have florida species you can sell our frozen products in um in in your market in florida and you can you know have other business options with us and stuff like that but it's totally your business and that way they can support the network of fishermen around them pay them honest wages you know and you know I feel like yeah. that's something that is really missing in the United States. Um, whereas when I lived in Germany, you went to multiple grocery stores mm -hmm. to eat your food. Like you'd go to a bakery and you'd get bread and then you'd go to a dairy and you'd get cheese and mm -hmm. then you'd go in butchers to get meat. And then you'd go to a supermarket and you would get everything else that's like processed. Mm-hmm. But there were like specific locations everywhere where it was just, this is a bakery. Yep. Mm -hmm. This is a, this is a butcher. And you could actually get that one product. And I feel like in the United States, there aren't any of those. Mm -hmm. And it's really, again, it, it does cut out some of that. I mean, you just feel like you're getting, you're getting squeezed for every penny as the producer. Mm -hmm. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, cause there is that middleman that then is forced to be involved. Mm -hmm. And so I've heard that actually with a lot of farmers that mm -hmm. sell products directly to large distributors like Kroger and Walmart, that they feel like they just get completely like, there's just a noose around their neck that they're just, mm -hmm. you have to hit under this certain dollar amount and it's almost not profitable unless you're a mega farm and mm -hmm. it just kills all these small farmers because of that. And I feel like, like you said, if there was not all those middlemen and it went straight from fisher, fishermen to consumer, just mm -hmm. right there in that pipeline, you wouldn't have to squeeze the fishermen as much. Mm -hmm. The idea is that you pay them for, you know, what they're giving you. You know, we give our canneries, our, our fish processors, arguably one of the most valuable seafood species in the world and they give us pennies yeah that's insane you know it's like if we were to even pay them the same price as it <laughs> costs to raise a atlantic salmon you know they'd be ecstatic mm. i would be ecstatic i'm going to continue to fish in that fishery you know but like again just like you know these people who are building these uh, you know, like boutique style, like, you know, 
shops, direct to consumer stuff, they don't have the capacity to really scale and change the industry. But our model, the way that we're working it, you know, the more stores that we open, the more volume we can take, mm-hmm. which means that the more fishermen that we can help. Mm-hmm. And that's really all we care about. You know, the reason why we're going to do the affiliate program instead of just buying up all these companies around the coast is because we want to help the fishmongers. We want to help the fishermen on the coast. You know, we want to help the consumer consume seafood at a, at a reasonable price. Like once you get down to it, if you do it uh, with the fishermen and the consumer first in mind, you know, these farmed crap products aren't even going to be able to survive. Yeah. We'll be able to push them all out. Yeah, because the, fisher, the fishermen will then care more about the product, and then the consumer will care more about the product. Mm-hmm. And if it's a win-win for everybody, like price, everything's there. I mean, mm-hmm. it, seems, it seems logical. Mm-hmm. So th- that's, you know, that's our company, Alaska Current Seafoods. And, mm-hmm. and uh, we have a GoFundMe. We're, we're starting the process. Again, we're a new company. Um, our, uh, our first process is going to be building the infrastructure needed to support the fishermen. So we're going to need, you know, a processing facility. We're going to need all of those things. And so, you know, when you donate, uh, money to our company, uh, you know, we'll give you merch, you know, we'll give you stuff that will, you know, show your support to these fishermen and, um, then, then every dollar that you give us is going directly to building this infrastructure for these fishermen right. and to you, like, I think, you know, pretty soon, maybe in your town or whatever, you can have a, f- a fishmonger with frozen seafood where, you know, exactly where it's coming from, who caught it. And it's at a price that competes with all of this farmed junk. Yeah. It seems like a win, win, win to me. Yeah, you know. So where are you guys at in the process? So you've got this GoFundMe going. Um, Mm -hmm. Are you guys meeting with local fishermen? Are you guys going to try and test, you know, a percentage of your catch next year Mm -hmm. with this whole process? Like, what does that look like? So actually, we are in the middle of uh, resurrecting a dead fishery. So we've we've started um, working with fishermen in uh, in a sea urchin fishery in Alaska that hasn't been fished in like 20 years. So the value of these fishermen's permits are like in the dumps. Uh, nobody's fishing for it. Another reason why we're exporting, you know, we're part of the problem. You know, there is a demand for a sushi grade product in Japan. We have that relationship. The first thing that we want to do is start building a leg of the company that can produce an infrastructure to help all these fishermen in Alaska. So that's kind of why we're starting there. Um, but anyway, so yeah, we're, we're working with fishermen directly in Kodiak, Alaska, and, uh, we're in a phase where we're just trying to kind of build stuff up from the ground up. Um, and so there's a lot of work that needs to be done We're we're working really hard and we're hoping, uh, starting next summer, you know, fingers crossed if everything goes well, um, we'll be able to offer, uh, you know, a select amount of salmon here in the domestically in the United States. Um, you know, depending on, um, essentially how many people are interested, you know, we can get a lot of salmon if, if 
people are interested. Um, when do you want to have your first sea urchin run sent to Japan? Uh, October. Oh, yeah. that soon. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you've already you've already talked to fishermen, and you're mm -hmm. just you've lining up those relationships. You will hopefully have a portion of that business going to Japan currently, kind of working then on the infrastructure through to process things. Mm -hmm. so that you can start distributing local or domestically as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, nice. Yeah. And again, the name of your company is Alaska current seafoods, Alaska current seafoods and your GoFundMe. I know you said is not live yet, no, but it will it be will hopefully be. by the time this yeah. podcast airs. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we'll have like a social media page and stuff that you can go to okay. and with links and stuff. Yeah. And I will, as long as everything is live by the time I post this, a uh, link should be, in the description for YouTube, for Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this, you should be able to go in there, take a look at them, take a look at their bios, what they're doing. Um, I cannot recommend Alaskan seafood enough. Again, it's I the best. I have eaten 20 pounds probably worth of salmon this month, and I will you know continue to eat Alaskan seafood for the rest of my life because makes you feel good. You know where it's coming from. You know, there's not, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's amazing fishing in Alaska. I mean, there's, it's but, so clean. It's so, I mean, the food is so good and it's so good for you that, I mean, the benefits are enormous. So as you scale, I would just highly recommend people you know, keep an eye out, look for that opportunity because I mean, there's enough fitness trends and food trends out there that make you healthy. This is definitely one that should be your priority. You know, get on good, good, sustainable, healthy seafood because there's also not healthy seafood out there. And if you live next to the coast, support your local fishermen, your local fishmongers. If you live on any coastal state, go down to the docks or you know wherever there's a fish distributor and find this stuff it may be a little bit more expensive right now but i promise it's worth it because if you can keep those fisheries running you know hopefully one day the whole industry will shift into this you know idea that we have um and you know you'll be able to once again you know in america i know probably none of us have had a, a real relationship with you know, our seafood or our, our coast, our oceans. Um, but hopefully once again, the United States will have a relationship to its seafood. So even if you can't get your hands on Alaska seafood because you live in North Carolina or Florida or whatever, go support your local fishermen. Eat some catfish, eat some. Yeah, catfish, shrimp, yeah. snapper, Whatever all of it. It's it good stuff. It's I've good. had a lot of it. It's all oh, good dude, stuff. I, I love seafood. Yeah. Like, oh, this book just... It made, made me hungry. Made me hungry. <laughs> All right. So before we go, how would you rate this book on a scale of one to 10 for both for initially fun? Like, how, was it like, how did you like the book? And then second rating one to 10 importance. Well, I'm a little skewed. Yeah. I'm a little biased. Here. That's okay. Uh, as far as fun goes, I think it was really well written. I'd give it an eight. Okay. Uh, wow. It's, it's good. Uh, as far as importance, a 10. No, <laughs> I, I do think it's important. I think, you know, food, water, shelter, right? Those are the three basics of, of life. 
uh, yeah, I think knowing where your food comes from, knowing that it's healthy is extremely important. So, uh, I would give it at least a nine on importance. Okay. I would say for me, it was a, don't do me dirty. I was going to say a six on fun. Honestly. Uh, wait, wait, wait. So, why, did, why didn't you, was it just like the, the climate change part that you didn't like? No, it wasn't just the climate change part. I felt like, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't feel like there was enough personal stories in it. I don't know. Mm. You know, I liked, I liked hearing your personal stories about Bristol Bay a lot more than I liked hearing about, I don't know, the, the, the native corporations being involved in the, yeah. and involved in Pebble Mine or, you know, mm. the, I don't know. Some of this, I, again, my favorite section was definitely the shrimp section. Really loved hearing about farmed shrimp in, you know, South China, Vietnam, Vietnam, Thailand area. I thought that was all fascinating. Um, Oysters started off really fascinating and then turned into like not as fascinating halfway through his stories about oysters. You know, it just, it turned into like, we tried to plant this one oyster and it just didn't work. And then we tried to plant this one oyster and it just didn't work. Whereas like, it started off really fascinating with him talking mm-hmm. about his experience searching the bottom of the ocean and not being able to see any and all this kind of stuff. So I just felt like there could have been more stories directly from fishermen. Mm-hmm. That would have been my, my biggest grind with it. Mm-hmm. Some parts of it, I felt like, eh, you know, but yeah. overall, I mean, sticks, it was still enjoyable. Like I, I didn't hate reading. It wasn't too long. It wasn't anything like my last book. Mm-hmm. And um, importance, though, I'd give it an eight. Um, again, because this is the part of climate change, global warming, that I really do agree with. Like, we have mm-hmm. to figure out how to treat our planet better in a way that doesn't kill animals, really, yeah. is what it comes down to. Like, and- doesn't kill the ocean. Like, stop throwing your garbage in the freaking rivers. Stop mm-hmm. shipping all of our recycling junk to China so that they can dump it in their rivers. Yeah. And like, that's the kind of stuff that kills kills fish. That's the kind of stuff that kills oysters. Kills, mm-hmm. you know, everything. And that is, I mean where we could solve a lot of our health food crisis where we just have over-processed, over-engineered vegetables, over-engineered beef, over-engineered chicken, just pumped full of growth hormones. It's just ridiculous. And so, you know, take care of the, the wild habitat first, first and foremost. Imagine in a perfect world, right? Imagine a place where every fishery, in the United States was thriving like Bristol Bay was. And we had regenerative farming done, you know, because they'll all say, you know, you can't do regenerative farming because it's not scalable. But if you supplement with more seafood, which is actually healthier, uh, you absolutely could. And all of, you know, the dead zone that he talks about in the Gulf you know, from all the fertilizer and junk that comes down the Mississippi Delta, all of that would be gone. 
Yeah. You know, imagine where we would be at as a country, you know, diabetes, mental health, you know, a relationship to the land. Like if we just did those two things, yeah. if we just, you know, regenerative farmed on the Mississippi Delta and restored our fisheries. So much healthier. And that's why, again, I think it's innate importance because it's an important message. This is the, this is a very positive step forward in kind of revitalizing our planet that doesn't Mm -hmm. include like never stepping foot on an airplane ever again. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's like actual things that Mm -hmm. people can do and that we can do as a human species and cleaning up our oceans and cleaning up the way that we treat them and Mm -hmm. working on, you know, creating sustainable fisheries like Bristol Bay is definitely attainable. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think it's important. So awesome. So yeah, definitely check out the link in the bio and definitely give them all your support that you can. Pretty excited. Hopefully the merch that you guys drop is pretty chill. If you can do anything as cool as Salty Crew, you'll be killing it. Uh, It's cooler. It's cooler than Salty Crew. All right. Uh, Because our money goes to fishermen. That is true. But yeah, work on your logos and designs so they're yeah. pretty chill like that uh but yeah definitely like comment subscribe into the podcast share it with your friends if you know anybody else that wants to join the podcast and talk about you know what they love or what they're doing or even just want to read a fun book with me definitely do it because i think mm-hmm. this was 10 times more enjoyable than me monologuing about the nazi germany that <laughs> happened last week even though i think that's still a good episode a good definitely episode. Ch- definitely check it out i think there was a lot to be learned from that, but I think this is definitely more enjoyable. So it's always fun when we can talk with people. So definitely, you know, get involved with the podcast. If you are interested in hopping on, let me know. Um, leave me a comment, shoot me an email. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening.